Hey, welcome to the Life 2.0 podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. It's a very special episode today as we remember the late, great John Denver on what would have been his 80th birthday. John Denver wrote well over 300 songs and published well over 300 songs. And I always felt you could encapsulate his entire philosophy in that one song, The Eagle and the Hawk. You just heard that clip from the uh, the double live album, An Evening with John Denver, that came out in 1975. I don't know how many times platinum it went, but it was a huge uh, selling album back in the day. Thanks for joining me uh, today. With all full disclosure, this show has been put together in parts during the past week. You know, I, I got moving parts over here and moving parts over there. I have some great guests coming up on the show. We all had to rearrange our schedules to get that done. And uh, yesterday was my birthday. I mentioned this last week on my, on the show, and I appreciate all the, the cards and letters, and I got some really interesting stuff from the guys I used to serve with, none of which I can share with you here in this public forum. But this is not about my birthday. It's about John Denver's 80th, which would be tomorrow. So we're a day apart and he was born on December 31st, 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico. He would go on to become one of the biggest selling artists in the history of recorded music. And for a time, he was the number one selling artist in the world. And nobody sustains that forever. So like all major uh, musical acts, it kind of goes and comes and goes here and there, up and down. And of course, it was uh, October 12th, 1997 that he perished in the plane crash, uh, Monterey Bay in California. And since that time, I have done multiple uh, 
tributes and remembrances for John. He was instrumental, no pun intended, in my career. If uh, he had not asked me to speak at the Windstar Foundation in 1994, I don't think anything I do now would have uh, ever been on my palate. Uh, he pushed me out on stage. He saw something in me I didn't see in myself. And he asked me to, to step up and, and live that. And I have and have not stopped. And to some degree, it's almost becomes a little bit of an obsession because I realize that there's so much going on in the world and there's only so much I can do. And I think that was another major tenet of John's is not to get sucked into the big picture, but find out what you can do where you're at with what you have to make a difference on, on that level. So over the years, as I mentioned, I, I've done, you know, lost count probably for sure every December 31st, at least I played a few songs of his on radio wherever I've been in the world. Uh, in 2007, I hosted and produced a Peabody-nominated tribute to John, the man and his music, at Oprah Radio when I was there for, for Harpo, and that had huge airplay on Sirius and XM Radio. They were separate at the time, not like one today where they're just one, which is uh, serious. But I did that, and then uh, in 2022, of course, it was the 25th anniversary of John's passing, and so it was a huge blowout with that. It was like, I don't know, two and a half hours long. I'm not going to do all that today. Uh, I have three incredible guests uh, joining me in just a few minutes, but I wanted to come at this a little bit different. Of course, he is known for his music, and and you know, if you haven't seen this yet, the latest iteration of John in the media is this commercial by Chevy that uh, started, I believe, on Thanksgiving where there is a woman who is uh, has dementia and she is taken out for a ride in a 72 Chevy Blazer by her granddaughter who then puts in a cassette or a 8-track, probably it's not a cassette in 72, it could have been a cassette, but I believe it's an 8-track in the commercial. And Sunshine on My Shoulders start playing through the commercial. There's not a dry eye in America at this point. Annie Denver even texted me the stuff over. She says, you gotta see this. So. He still is, is so much part of the American landscape on so many different levels. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit. Maybe more importantly, I wanted to dig into his environmental stuff. This is a guy who was a heavyweight when it came to environmental stewardship, way ahead of his time, way ahead of everybody else. He was out in front long before people were getting involved in these things. And I have always felt and maintained that it was a obviously a reciprocal thing. He got our attention with his music and his messages and the l melodies, but he was asking us to do something. He was asking us to take action. There's a difference between sitting and listening to a few songs and enjoying it, and that's all well and good, but then there's, to me, doing the work that's unfinished on his behalf. So for me, it's this microphone. You know, it's doing the Earth Matters series uh, with Bill Curtis we did for years. And it's also the reminder that you can't do it all, nor should you try, because you'll just get apathy and burnout and go off into the corner, and you know that's the end of that. We don't need that. I don't know how many times I hear people say, boy, we sure could use another John Denver right about now. I think he was saying, you take over. I'm not here. You do something. Figure out one little thing, whether it's just making sure you're getting the recycling done or you're volunteering at a nature center. doesn't matter what it is. Just find something to do. And then listen to the music because it's pretty good as well. Coming up first, uh, this is so exciting for me because I have known uh, Dr. Cheryl Charles for a very long time. She is an innovator, author, organizational executive, and educator, one of the leaders of the worldwide movement to reconnect children, youth, families, and adults with nature, co-founder and CEO Emirata 
of the Children and Nature Network, member of the Steering Committee for IUCN's Commission on Education and Communication, the international co-chair of Nature for All, and lead author of the research synthesis, Home to Us All, How Connecting with Nature Helps Us Care for Ourselves and the Earth. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining me on this remembrance of our friend John Denver's 80th birthday. How you doing? I'm doing great, and thank you for this opportunity. You know, I have such incredible memories of you back in the Windstar days, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that whole idea of Windstar and what it was about, and really the scope and breadth of the thing, because you and your husband, Bob, really put the Windstar Journal together. I, I've watched old videos on YouTube about those really glory days of this ambitious effort, to say the least, that, that Tommy Crum and John put together. Uh, and, and you were such an integral part of that. Can you kind of just share some of that with us? Oh, I'm happy to do so. I, it was actually 1978 when Bob, when I was first introduced to JD at one of the uh, um, the concerts that he always did as a benefit um, for the deaf children in uh, in in Aspen. And in and it's correct that we had so many interests in common. And I've always kind of summarized them as being children, uh, family, community, and the environment. And and all of that came together. We would laugh and say, it was David Randall, by the way, I should say, who first introduced uh, us to JD. Tom along the way as well, because Tom and, and, uh, and Bob were close. But it was the case that we shared so many interests in common, but we absolutely, um, you know, he did all the, the songwriting and he had all the ideas that came out in that way. But we shared these other uh, these other interests and the Winstar Foundation manifested that uh, we were certainly involved for all 10 years of the uh, Winstar Choices for the Future Symposia. And, uh, you know, you know from talking with, with Tom Crum, who co-founded Winstar, the foundation, with John, John wanted a place where people who were really working to make the world a better place would come together and share ideas. And one of John's commitments was that these luminaries who would come share this environment with him and others needed to be there the whole of the three days. He wanted everybody to listen and participate. It was none of this you know, come in and give a talk and leave. It was all mm -hmm. about coming together, doing our best, to share ideas, to actually get nourished. That was one of the things he thought about. Busy people working so hard to make the world a better place, come together and be nourished by one another, leave refreshed, rejuvenated, and ready to go forth and continue uh, to support um, you know, all of our efforts to make the world healthier and more peaceful and more sustainable. It's been said by many people that John was working on the environment before most people could spell it. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. I, I've been looking through some of my own uh, files and records of things that he was involved with. I'll, I'll give you a couple of anecdotes about that. It's certainly the case that he was involved with efforts to protect the wild areas in Alaska uh, early, early on. And he's often said that one of his proudest moments was standing next to Pre President Carter and with Marty Murray, the conservationist, uh, at the White House when the Alaska Wild Lands Act was signed in 1980. 
1880, but his work long, long uh, preceded that. One of the things people would not know so very much about, he helped me with work to have the National Environmental Education Act uh, approved. I went with him to Congress when he testified in support of that act. That would have been April of 1990. And he gave his, his testimony, of course, his written testimony, which is still in the record and all of that. But of course, he also sang a song and it was beautiful and inspiring. And do you remember what he, do you remember what he sang, Cheryl? Um, I, I think it was to the wild country. Oh, well, there you uh, go. Yeah. I, and, you know, so always, always with his heart around the importance of, caring for the environment, keeping the wild places alive, making sure that those special places would be there for generations to come. Related to that though, and the reason I'm telling this story is that he thought it was so important for children to connect with the natural world, to learn how it worked, to be inspired by um, you know all aspects of the living of the living world. And so it's it's important that that National Environmental Education Act is still funded and still providing grants every year. Now, you know, 30 plus mm. or so years into it, providing support for teachers to integrate ecological concepts into the mainstream of schooling, pro providing opportunities for teachers to learn how to take children outdoors, uh, you know, it remains so incredibly important. And that's part of his legacy that I suspect a lot of people don't know as much about. That's why I asked you on the show, because so much, well, you know, we, you say John Denver and you, and, and people of course think of Take Me Home Country Roads, Rocky Mountain High, all the great songs and stuff, but I've always felt that there was a little agenda behind JD's music. And the agenda to me was listen to this, enjoy it, but then do something about that, what you care about. And I think, I don't even think, I know the Windstar concept and the whole experiment basically that it was for 10 years was such a big deal at the time. I mean, I cannot think of any other artist with his uh, presence and platform worldwide that did what he did, you know, put that whole thing together in the symposiums every year. I mean, he was really serious about his music, but maybe even more serious about what was behind it. Absolutely. And he, he made a distinction. He, well, whereas he cared so deeply about ending hunger, about having this be a peaceful, healthy planet, uh, all of those issues that he cared so deeply about, he would let those ideas come through in his songs. That's absolutely a major way that he shared um, his values with the world. But he also said people came to concerts to be entertained. So he was careful about the extent to which he used that platform. That's a major reason he created Windstar, because there he felt like he could say whatever he meant and felt, uh, whereas in the concerts he let the, that, those ideas come through in his, in his lyrics. Mm -hmm. You were in the audience, I recall, I think this is correct, that you were in the audience for the Wildlife Concert in New York, were you not? Yes, I was. And there's somewhere, there's this video. I've, I, I'm like, that's Cheryl Charles sitting right there. This was <laughs> one of the, yeah, this is like in the third row, as I recall in the middle. Uh, but uh -huh. as I recall, that was the, this concept of the wildlife show that he did 
was a melding, I think, of both of those things because people clearly knew through his music what he stood for and what he wouldn't stand for. And this was one of those times where based around the work and the music, they all kind of came together in that. And, you know, depending on where you started listening to his music and message, the Wildlife concert, because of the the stance he took and because of the, the cut-ins that were during the show talking about the environment and what was going on, was really a melding of the two. It was a pretty phenomenal concert as well. Oh, it was outstanding, and you're right. Uh, and that was quite a that was quite an effort and an accomplishment for any entertainer to do what he did over those two days, two nights, to to uh, create what ended up being such an important um, public service in a way. You know, it continues mm. to be shown on PBS. It's just an outstanding concert. You know, there is uh, a few people I know in the in the TV business said that you know for years Wayne Dyer kept PBS in business, but now John Denver does because those concerts, <laughs> nice. like you well, yeah, those concerts, it's a good connection. It's a good handoff. But uh, how do you account for the fact, Cheryl, that, you know, 25 years after John's gone, this music is everywhere. You know, there's a, there's a Chevy commercial now with sunshine on my shoulders. There are movies like the, the Kingsman with his music in it, places you'd never thought this stuff would show up. He'd get a kick out of it, but how do you account for this? If at all possible that, the message and the music and the voice continue on as they do? That's a beautiful question. Uh, the first uh, response that comes to mind is his authenticity, his his sincere effort to find a voice. You know, as he said in that, uh, I think the last special that uh, talks about his last song, let this be a voice, let this be a voice uh, for uh, for the planet for wildlife, for the living world, all of that. His immense talent, his creativity. Uh, I, you know, I'm thinking about him, well, first of all, I feel like I'm still working with him, you know, because <laughs> sure. I continue um, to, uh, to, to do all of that, focused again on children, on community, on family, on the environment. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's that extraordinary combination of things. It's his being deeply principled and thoughtful. He was incredibly smart. Let us not forget that. I mean, he was a he was an incredible synthesizer and learner. And a lot of that, you know, you put that together, uh, and and his his clarity, his authenticity, his vision still literally rings true for people. He touches their hearts uh, today, and uh, and that continues. You know, you think about songs like uh, "What Are We Making Weapons For?" Let us begin. Uh, you you think about Raven's Child and the impact of pollution on the environment. Uh, they're just are when you look at what Tommy Crum refers to as John's ballads, that's where so much of the incredibly eloquent addressing of issues that still we face today comes through. Hmm. His vision, his uh, insights are, are still enormously relevant. So everything has a beginning a middle and an end. And the Windstar project, the experiment, uh, the presence of it has come and gone. And in some ways, while that's ended, it's become a ripple effect in a much broader sense. Well, again, those ideas still matter. And there are issues that still need to be 
addressed. Uh, one of the things that John said along the way is, you know, it's it's easy to be overwhelmed. Remember, he said that each one of us taking action helps to create a healthy whole. And so we need, so I think that inspiration uh, continues at the same time we're still looking at amazingly difficult problems and challenges. Before I let you go, uh, first of all, so good to hear your voice again. You know, I've always just been so enamored with your work and, and your dedication to duty, and that continues. But people listening are all over the world today. Where could they go to not learn so much more about what you're doing, but what they can do? Is there a pet project? Is there something where if somebody wants to get involved or, or make a donation that you say, go here and do this because it's worth it? Well, sure. Let me start with that. Um, the Children in Nature Network. Uh, childrenandnature.org is a nonprofit I co-founded in 2006 with the author Richard Louvre, who wrote the book Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. I would say that, uh, that that organization actually truly represents so much of what John cared about, getting children outdoors, falling in love with the natural world, you know, getting knee deep in mud, climbing trees, doing all those kinds of things. Um, you know, a story about that actually, it was 96 and it was Thanksgiving. John had come to Santa Fe and was with us with a number of our good friends for the Thanksgiving holiday. And one evening we were talking and I was talking about the work to integrate ecological concepts into schools, you know, things I still work on uh, today. And he said, Cheryl, we've got to get kids literally outdoors. You've got to have them see the stars and feel the breeze and, 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 and climb trees and all of that. And I said, okay, well, because Project Wild was a little more academic. It was a little more get these concepts into the mainstream of schooling. Mm -hmm. But the Children and Nature Network has carried that forward and still does today. And it's all about getting children and families outdoors and people of all ages. I had never asked you this question. Before I let you go, I have to ask it. Where does this deep well of connection to the planet come for you? This little girl, did you, I mean, this, I talk with you and I get like your, your energy around the environment is infectious in a good way. <laughs> how, how, where does this come from in you? I'm sure it actually uh, is in my childhood. You know, I always say I never give up on anybody at any age. <laughs> but if you can connect children uh, with the environment, then that stays with them throughout their lives. So sure, for me, it was a lot of time outdoors. It was riding horses with my granddad. It was, uh, yeah, just literally lying uh, by a creek in the which is hard to do in Arizona, but looking up through cottonwood trees and seeing those green leaves against a blue sky and going, that is so beautiful. There's only one person who can really lift the lid on, on John's environmental dedication and interpretation and combine it with the music and was around him enough and close enough to really give voice to that. You've done all of those things many times over. I, thanks so much. My pleasure. I, you know what? He was extraordinary. So may his voice live on. Thank you so much, John. Uh, there's 8,000 reasons that I'm real excited about the opportunity of doing this show. One of them is this song, that this has a chance of, uh, of being heard a little bit and perhaps igniting something 
in people's hearts. Vision. 
Next up, so excited for this. I've been listening to this guy's music for, I don't know, ever. And you all know it as, as much as I do. Uh, Michael Martin Murphy is a multiple Grammy nominee. Murph has six gold albums, including Cowboy Songs, which was the first album of cowboy music to achieve gold status since Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs by Marty Robbins back in 1959. He has recorded the hit singles Wildfire, which is an anthem, Bottom line, Carolina in the Pines, What's Forever For, A Long Line of Love, What She Wants, Don't Count the Rainy Days, and Maybe This Time. And he has become a prominent musical voice for the Western Horseman, Rancher, and Cowboy. Murph, thanks so much for taking time out uh, of your, your busy schedule, especially at this time of the year, to join us on this celebration and remembrance of John Denver's 80th birthday. Thank you. It's a particularly... Uh sentimental moment for me because uh, John did so much to help me in my career in the early days when I was scuffling. So Scuffling a little bit, were you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> had, my, had my scuffling days. Yeah, I bet. I know you did. You know, and you know, your music, of course, is known around the world has become part of the country and Western uh, really uh, song list and soundtrack of so many people's lives. It's hard for those of us who are on the other side of the radio dial sometimes to realize how much work, energy, and effort goes in to making that happen. And it's, it's you know, if, if it does happen for an artist, it's a blessing because it's a very tough business. How did John specifically support you in your efforts? Uh, I met John uh, at Red Rocks uh, at a concert thanks to Steve Weisberg. At that point, Weisberg had already presented Boy from the Country to him and he had recorded it on the album uh, An Evening with John Denver, which was a double a double album, mm -hmm. four-sided four vinyl. And it's still one of the best recordings of anybody live that you'll ever get in any, in any genre of music. John is right on in it. He must have done a lot of rehearsing for that. And, uh, of course, he had a good ear. Uh, so I, he helped me by recording that song and that was really my way into knowing him. Thanks to a guitar player who's from the area I grew up in Dallas, Fort Worth, 
Uh, Steve Weisberg became his lead guitar player a little bit before that and had moved to Aspen. Um, after that, that initial meeting, we became friends. But what happened before that was just a, a process of John continually coming back to the song Boy from the Country and recording it in so many different settings. And he always performed it. And his, once he did it once, he did it. He never released it as a single that I knew mm -hmm. of, but he always did it in all of his concerts from the time he, he started Evening with John Denver. That album was so successful that he kept most of the material that he did in Evening with John Denver in those concerts and didn't really introduce very many new things as he went out live on the road. Uh, he'd release a few things, but I think he had the same philosophy as I do. You owe a lot to your audience. You know, uh, gosh, uh, you know, I remember I, I had my first date with a girl and we were listening to your song, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm, those, were, mm -hmm. those, were, those were really important memories. And John and I both agreed on, we owe a lot to the audience and we need to honor their memories and their requests and what they want to hear, which is how I think he developed that album. Mm. And I guess he continued to get a lot of requests for it. But mm -hmm. obviously financially, the royalties were incredible on that one because it was one of his most popular albums. Mm -hmm. Then he did it again on Some Days Are Diamonds. Right. And uh, I really don't, know how well that album did but it was a great studio version that he did that was almost symphonic and he did a lot of symphony performances around that time which uh inspired me to eventually do symphony performances when i had the clout to get him he liked to use big arrangements sometimes and sometimes he just liked to just play songs just solo acoustic mm -hmm. and he and I'm just like him. I, I like to go back and forth between those two things. Uh, there's a certain way you play songs when you do them by yourself. There's a certain way you play with a band. There's certain ways you play with a symphony. But go back to the genesis of Boy From The Country on a couple levels. One is, where does it come from in you that you wrote the song? What was the real inspiration for that? And then the second part of it is, you know, it's one thing to write a song and put it down and, and get the words there and the lyrics out, but you had to feel I mean, I don't even know what you could have felt when you first heard that on the evening with John Denver. It must have been something. Well, I was actually in a in a publishing um, house. Uh, the people that published that song, and they're the ones who played it for me. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I heard it that night that I met him at Red Rocks, but the album had already been out for a while. Wow. Um, but my my reaction was... He does it better than I do when it when it comes to being a singer. But Boy from the Country is about another guy who struggled a lot and eventually nearly was martyred for it and then uh, gave up everything that he had for his poetry and his point of view. And that was St. Francis of Assisi. So uh, I wrote the song about St. Francis. I had just read G.K. Chesterton's book about him. Mm -hmm. It was a good book to come out at the time because a lot of people were protesting a lot of things. And, of course, the main thing John Denver was protesting was the way we were destroying the land and the wilderness and our natural resources. 
And uh, St. Francis was a perfect person for him to relate to because over almost 900 years ago now, St. Francis said the same thing. You know, he was, uh, I think I pointed this out. I just listened to the interview I did with you back in 2007. Uh, yeah. So I'm going back to a little bit of that because that's been a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, St. Francis was thrown out. Uh, he basically, uh, his father wanted him to be, take over his bu business. His dad was a very wealthy merchant. And St. Francis had a different vision for his life. And he gave it all up. The story is he, he stripped off all of his clothes in the middle of the city square, went off and wore basically what we would call a feed sack with a rope around it and sandals for the rest of his life. Gets a lot more complicated than that, but the simplistic breakdown of it is love God, love your neighbor. And I think that was John's philosophy. Mm. You know, I've always felt that he, like you, used his music as a gospel of sorts, that you're urging people to, to think deeper and, and, and broader and more inclusive in our lives. And I've always found your work and his work very similar and a few other artists. You're, you're kind of out there with an invitation for people to look at their lives differently. And as much time as I spent with him over the years, I found the same thing. I think you're, there's no category he fit in. He fit into all the categories. I think that whole concept of music as a universal language he took very, very seriously. And you know, you you can go sing in China or, or Australia mm -hmm. or Japan or, you know, one of the best versions, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but the, one of the best versions of Boy From The Country he did in the Soviet Union. Correct. And I also know that he sang it on the Great Wall of China. Yes. In front of an audience of about a million people. Right, right. I think uh, he looked at the, at the life of St. Francis as saying, you know, to believe in God, you don't need a Bible. All you have to do is walk around and look at nature, and you can conclude that there's a God right there. He he agreed with St. Francis on that level. I think that's where the song connected with him. You know, it was, it was the way he opened his final concert. He had just come in from the golf course. Yeah. He had he had his girlfriend at the time was a golf pro. Right. And he was out there, and that was like the day before, a couple of days before he got into that experimental aircraft yeah you know it's interesting murph that you didn't write the song for him but in some ways it became about him over time it was almost like his voice i don't know how you write for someone with a voice like that but somehow those lyrics lined exactly up with the tone and tenor of how he presented it to the world and i would imagine all these years later I mean, that's a long time ago brother you did that I would imagine all these years later when you hear it somewhere or that the fact that it's still out in the world as prevalent as it is and his message is as prevalent as it is, you got to think that there is larger hands at work here sometimes. Um, he just liked a good song and sang it as well as he possibly could. And when you're talking about John Denver, you're talking about that's pretty, that's pretty well, that's pretty, that's that's going to be, that's going to sound really clear and clean. Mm -hmm. His music all these years later, uh, I find a little bit fascinating, Murph, that it continues to be, you know, listened to all over the world, maybe even more popular than he's ever been in the last 20 years. Since you and I spoke in 07, his songs show up in movies. Uh, I don't know if you caught the Chevy commercial with sunshine on my shoulders on it, you know. Uh, Annie Denver sent me a text message. You got to see it, but get the Kleenex ready. They got sunshine in there and they got a 72 chevy blazer and they're driving grandma around 
and they put a cassette in. There's John singing. So here it is, 25 years since he's been gone, and his music still has a position in the world today. Does that surprise you at all? Uh, not, not if you look at who John Denver was, how he sang, how he approached his music. He was absolutely working every day. I never, John was working when he was skiing. I skied with him and John would be working. Hey, that, <laughs> look at that tree. That inspires a song in my heart. Murph, you ought to write a song about what I just saw. <laughs> you know, he was that way. He was always working, always creating in his head. And of course he lived the life he loved and he loved the life he lived. He didn't live the life of a musician. He lived the life of an outdoorsman and wrote about that. Last question, Murph, and I'll cut you loose. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You know, time rolls on. We all get older. Speak but... for yourself, brother. <laughs> you know, by the way, I have to say, if, if there was a list somewhere of all the greatest beards in music, you got to be at the top of the list, man. Yeah, it's a pretty white beard now. Well, that's all right. You earned it. So Tom Crump would always say, you know, he's very sad that John's gone, but he was so very glad that John was here. And when I think of the musical part of his life, you know, something that you're very close to, you know, is there any greater, I guess, uh, legacy than to know that 25 years after you're gone, people are still listening to the music, it's timeless, and it, it still lifts people up, you know, so many decades after he wrote some of these songs. And boy, for the country included, that, that, that message uh, that, is, uh, that you wrote, the lyrics that you wrote that John put out in the world that you sing, uh, almost more needed now than it was when you penned it back in the day. I mean, it's really amazing how music continues to be something so important to people. Well, I'll just say this to, 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 to end this off as far as that legacy goes. There's also something real simple about this. John never did one song that a kid who's learning beginning guitar and gets enough chords under his belt so that he's kind of getting toward intermediate. He never did one song that that kid couldn't sing or, mm. learn, or learn. He kept it simple, just like Hank Williams, three chords in the truth. <laughs> uh, John was more like four or five chords in the truth. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, it was also very intentional that he did that. He was very intentional about that. The thing that we agreed on 100%, if a song doesn't sound good with one instrument backing it up or acapella, it's probably not a song that's going to last. Because he called Far as brother Because he called The earth his mother They drove him out Into the Some people even said that the boy from the country 
Tell us that the animals can speak. And who knows? Maybe they do. Maybe they do. Hey, how do you know they don't? Just because they've never spoken to you Boy from the country Left his home And he was young Boy from the country He loves the sun, yes he does He tried to tell us That we should love the land We just turned our heads and laughed You see, we did not understand Sometimes I think a boy from the country Is the only one who sees Cause a boy from the country doesn't want to see the forest for the trees Boy from the country Left his home when he was young Boy from the country He loved the sun Oh, Next up is a good friend. Donna Lippman has worked in the coaching and training industry for the past 20 years or so and has helped thousands of clients achieve increased professional and personal success through public speaking. She leads groups and teaches presentation skills to entrepreneurs across the globe, including Korea, Colombia, Japan. She was in India 
Uh, she is a consultant with the University of Texas and Symphony Natural Health, loves traveling the world and helping technology innovators bridge cultural gaps through presentation and communication. And she joins me now. Donna, thank you so much for joining me on this really interesting and uh, I think appropriate uh, remembrance of John Denver on his 80th birthday. Absolutely. And I am honored to be, you know, John, I was honored to have been asked by you just in general. And then I heard who else you are having <laughs> on the show. And I feel like, wow, I am in great company. Yeah, you're the cleanup and hitter. I'm the cleanup hitter. And um, I, I hope this is appropriate, but I want to wish you a happy birthday. Well, thank you so much. You know, I was trying to figure out where I'm going to work that in all of this. And uh, I, you know, it's one of the great things about Facebook. You know, there's a lot of downside to social media, but I have more friends than I ever thought I'd have in my life. All Most right. of them I've never really met, but that's okay. Yeah. The only other thing that could make that even better is if you sang it to me. Oh, well, would you like to hear, you know, I've been in a band and it's called yes. the Texas Lovebirds. Yes. And we had our own version of Happy Birthday. So are you ready for that? Yes, I am. Okay, this is how it goes. Happy birthday, John. Happy birthday, John. Happy birthday, John. Now you were born on this date. And I think you're really great and kind and generous and brilliant and loving. Oh, John, it's your birthday. John, it's your birthday. John, it's your birthday now. Yahoo! I have permagrin. <laughs> my, I've literally, my cheeks are just stuck with a big grin. <laughs> you know, one of the great moments at Windstar, Cheryl and I talked about it earlier in the show, uh, the importance of Windstar and all that went, went around there. But there was also nights for entertainment. You know, while it was somewhat serious during the day with environmental stewardship and all the breakout sessions and the incredible speakers that were involved, um, evenings on Saturday night were for entertainment to a great degree. And yes. one, of the, one of the, you know, there was nothing like watching John up close in the Aspen Music Tent in the Rocky Mountains. Get out of here. <laughs> I know. Right? I, I mean. Know. Yeah. And people used to get upset because we'd have to be finished by 10 o'clock because there were, it was right in the neighborhood. Yeah, right? yeah. You could walk there through the neighborhood. Right. <laughs> and I, there is a clip online. I think they might have cleaned it up when I believe it was Kenny Loggins was getting ready to perform for his third song. And John walks out and tells Kenny he's got to cut it short because the neighbors <laughs> are complaining. And Kenny said That's something right. about we're in the F and Rocky Mountains. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that was a great time. But yeah. another great moment from then was when you and John sang a duet. And, you know, mm. uh, uh, can you just give us the background a little bit how that came to be? Well, you know, it's interesting. Terry, my husband, Terry Lippin, and I had uh, been working with John at the Windstar Foundation for, gosh, a long time. And um, we were always very kindly invited to his birthday party and New Year's Eve celebration up at John's house. And <laughs> one time there was a piano player there whom I knew and he looked at me and says, come on, let's go sing some songs. So we go to the piano and the piano in John's house was kind of in an odd place, um, not out there in the open. And I remember starting to sing and John poked his head around the corner. He says, well, you never told me you could sing. <laughs> 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 and 
And so after that, um, you know, the next summer, he asked me to sing with him. And well, of course, that was a huge honor. And um, it was the first time that I had ever sung with him. And he asked me about uh, Let This Be a Voice. You know that song? Yes, yes. We, yeah. Yep. He asked me about singing that, and it was just written. I had never really heard it, and I couldn't find the harmony. And he says, "Oh, let's forget that." And he went for <laughs> he went for a flower that shattered the yeah, stone. Yeah, and at the time, you know, so this would have been in the between ninety and ninety four. Would that have happened, or was it in the eighties? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, no, it was yeah around ninety. Well, maybe ninety three. Yeah, and I I was there that night, and I thought, who is this lady? <laughs> singing so well and then it dawned on me because we had met prob i don't know it was the year before it might have been the year or two before when the australian contingent came so do you remember when that might have been 80s well that was in the late 80s so yeah. my brain is just pushing these file drawers sister you know how it gets right i can't remember i do i do so this whole australian contingent shows up and and dear terry Lippman was in my way of seeing it kind of the band leader the ringleader of that whole deal and yes, he was. I remember coming down the stairway in at the at the hotel. I don't recall the, which one it was at the end of the soccer field there, on the far side of Aspen. There was this hotel. Mm-hmm. I think it may or may not still be there. And coming down this grand staircase, and there was all these Australians down there. And here's this guy, who grabs my arm, and he says, "Good day, John." And he <laughs> and he and he takes this uh, this little koala bear and pins it on my lapel and gives me a beer. I said, "I love this man." And of course that was Terry. And at some point over the next year or so, whenever, you know, there was these connections made, I realized that you two are obviously connected. And uh, then it made sense that you were singing. And to this day, that video of that moment of you and John at Windstar, of course, makes the rounds on YouTube. So when you look at that now, all these years later, what kind of pops in your head? Well... (laughs) <laughs> it was uh, a heady moment for me, and my heart just bursts wide open every time I see that. And, um, you know, my now husband, I'm very fortunate, you know, after Terry's passing, to have met another uh, wonderful man. He's a great guy. He, we love this guy. Is. Yes, we do. And he saw that video and he said that's what made him fall in love with me really yeah well tom do tell (laughs) (laughs) well you know i was very shy and oh my goodness i was so nervous and that's why john took my hand i remember yeah yeah he could see that i was nervous and i i gave it my all john (laughs) well you you know what's it's and i gotta tell you donna to this day you know uh it's it's just I think it's part of what Cheryl talked about in the first part of the show. This concept of Windstar, and literally bringing people together from all over the world. That there was a great responsibility in John to do that. I mean, he wasn't just a, a performer that sat on his laurels and sang songs and racked in the royalties. He actually put his money where his mouth is, and I think there was a great appreciation for that. But past that, doing something like that, which was pulling you up on stage and holding your hand. I mean, it's those type of moves you don't see from people who at one time were the leading recording artists in the world. Correct, correct. And, you know, it was so funny because there was a smattering of applause when he 
um, brought me up on stage and he said something lovely like, oh, you look great. And I said, well, I had a little help from my friends. All my girlfriends dressed me. And after this song, there was a standing ovation. And I had never received that kind of Mm. uh, reception before. So it was exciting. Well, you know what else was exciting was years later, I'm at Oprah Radio, and I was putting together the 2007 10-year remembrance for John, who passed in 97. And I put together a list of people I wanted to talk to. And of course, Terry was right at the top of the list, because I wanted to hear him say, G'day, John. He could say that every day, and I'd be good. And uh, he did, actually, when we started the show. G'day, John. He of just course. had such one a, of the reasons I married him, right? Just <laughs> this, right. this hearty energy that he had, and we had a delightful conversation. I used that in 2022 for the 25th anniversary of of John's remembrance, which I still can't believe it's been that long, but it has. Mm. And uh, and at the time when we did that show in 07, Terry was working on a documentary uh, that he was in progress and and not quite into production, but he was out, you know, kind of putting the pieces together. And he talked at length about this concept that apparently, and you could shed light on this, that he and John had met backstage after a concert somewhere. It was not long before John had passed. And this idea popped up about doing something in a documentary form. And I'm pretty sure Terry wasn't, I mean, he did a lot of things, but I don't think documentarian was on his list yet. No, it wasn't. Not at all. And it, it was a challenge for him uh, to be sure. But you know, um, when you asked me about being on the show today, I went through just, you know, very briefly, I went through a box, a huge box of information and, you know, magazines and all kinds of things that Terry had collected to put this documentary together. And what I found was a treatment for the movie or Mm. for the documentary. And wow, it just... Oh, brought tears to my eyes to see the vision that he had. You know, because Terry always thought that this film was about a celebration of the creative spirit that, you know, is in each of us and that yearns or longs for a peaceful and meaningful life. And, you know, John always talked about, you know, I long. He, he had this deep longing in his soul for a world of peace and harmony. And Terry really wanted to bring that out. Yeah, you know, off the air, somewhere I have all the, uh, the fodder audio that we didn't use for that show. And we had a, an extensive conversation, Terry and I, at the time about, about that. And quite frankly, he came right out and said in his way, John, can you give this to <laughs> Oprah so she writes me a fat check? <laughs> and I said, well, here's what I can do. <laughs> I could definitely get it on her desk. Whether she writes a check or not, I, I can't uh, speak to that. But uh, it, as it turned out, um, John Denver was one of Oprah's favorite artists. I didn't know that. Yes. That is- there was, in 1986, when she started her show here in Chicago, before she was national, before she was Oprah, she was doing something called, uh, like, Good Day Chicago or something like that. And she was the host. And they reached out to John when he was playing at Poplar Creek here or maybe in Tinley Park, one of the two bigger venues outside. And he, without knowing who she was, um, came over to the studios. Again, we're talking about a small studio audience, a local Chicago show. It was not the Oprah Winfrey show yet. And he did the show for her. 
And she admitted that, you know, that, that, that he was, you know, the, the songs and things really meant a lot to her. And when I talked to her about it later, um, she says, you know, I'll never forget the kindness he did. He was a major star. We never thought he'd say yes. They performed till 11 or 12 at night. It was a late show. And he got up in the morning and made him his way to the studio and did two hours. But I think that was John. Yeah, right. So, right. So there's part of this whole concept of, you know, doing what you can where you are with what you have. You go do that. A lot of guys would sleep in. He didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very true. The other part of this for me with Terry is this concept. Now, I know that the documentary based on John's life and example and presence, but he was really digging for something more. Uh, than just a documentary on on John Denver, wasn't he? He was, he was. And, you know, when you asked me about this, I started thinking about it. And there were several things I think that Terry had in mind about bringing to an audience. And, you know, I think that there are people in this world who don't know the extent of John's uh, humanitarian efforts and his activism. But, you know, this particular song, What One Man Can Do, of course, we know was written for uh, paying homage to Buckminster Fuller, right? And I think it resonates with this really powerful idea that individual efforts can have a significant impact on the world. And so, you know, one of those concepts was empowering the individual. And I think that it challenges the idea of helplessness in the face of, you know, huge issues, large scale issues that we have in this world and encouraging people to believe in their ability to affect change. I mean, just that one thing alone. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm constantly reminding myself and people, whether it's, it's mostly on my, on these podcasts that I do or interviews, uh, that the lifelines are more important than the headlines that you have to differentiate the two because mm-hmm. the way information is given to us these days, we are inundated, we are saturated uh, with stuff that we seemingly can do nothing about. But, exactly. as jo- but as John points out, if you find somewhere to burrow in on, a, on, a, on a, whether it's education, the environment, I don't care what the issue is, if you find somewhere to apply yourself to this societal ill, then you become immediately part of the solution and not living in the world of apathy where it all seems so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And everybody, I believe, and I believe John believed this, and certainly Terry believed this, that we each have a piece of the puzzle. And if we move forward just one step at a time, and no matter how big or small that um, you know thing that you do in the world, it, it doesn't matter that you are doing your piece. Yeah, you know, much like you being pulled up on stage, my entire broadcasting career does not exist without JD. It just doesn't. When I was invited to speak at Windstar in 94, I had not written a single book. There were no such thing as TED Talks. I had It would be three years before I ever go on the radio, but it was a meeting backstage with him in Boston, gosh, it, probably in 1991, a couple, three years earlier, and he's like, listen, do you have any idea what you're doing? I'm like, no, I don't really. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, your voice matters and the years will prove me right. So not only did he tell me that, he made me prove it by putting me on stage. Much like you, I didn't know you sang, come up and sing with me. 
similar thing, right? So I, 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 every now and again, I tell people I get a little hesitant to to do these shows because it's been so. I've said everything I can say. We played all the songs we can play, but this particular one, celebrating what would have been John's 80th tomorrow, um, seemed more important than the rest of them for some reason. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's because you know that's just this um, the times we're in and that the music and the messages are maybe more prevalent than they were even when I did this in 07. But there seems to be something that needs to be put out there still. And I needed the balance. I needed Cheryl talking about the environment. I needed Murph talking about the music. And I needed Donna talking about this concept <laughs> about what each of us can do to kind of blossom where we're planted, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's more about this whole concept as well in terms of human connection and compassion. And I think that the song itself just highlights the importance of empathy and compassion in the world. And goodness knows we could use some of that. <laughs> I think yeah. that it, it suggests caring for others uh, and striving to make a difference is, is fulfilling in, in a very meaningful way. So there's that concept and also community. There is a call to action in this song, I think. Um, and it's not just about individual efforts, but it's also about inspiring communities. And that's what Winstar did. Yes. Right? Yeah. And Winstar wasn't necessarily uh, doing you know, a huge project in the world, although Winstar did do projects, but but it was more of a catalyst to bring people together and to get them out there in their communities to make a difference. Mm. Let's, and, let, yep, go ahead. No, I was going to say, after all, I think deep down inside, that's what each of us wants in the world is to make a difference. Yeah. I know that when Terry and I got married, we were very conscious about the fact that we came together to do something more than... You know, I mean, nothing wrong with just being married, but <laughs> we we came together for a bigger reason. And this was a highlight for us, this uh, concept of what one man can do mm -hmm. and the documentary. Yeah, you know, so much of his John's music written decades ago applies today. I think he, he as you point out, he would know all that. He, he was, nothing lasts forever. Uh, and, and And the fact that this music continues as it has, you know, this isn't stuff that's just about an oldies channel anymore. So much of what he wrote and what people have heard in this this podcast are not the top 10 songs. They are not, you know, the hits. It's not Take Me Home Country Roads and Singalongs. These are songs right. that came from a very different place in him. And, uh, and it's a much needed place for sure. Donna, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to do this. Thank you, John. And again, happy birthday. I suppose that there are those who will say He had it easy, had it made in fact Before he'd even begun But they don't know the things I know I was always with him It may sound strange We were more than friends It's hard to tell the truth when no one wants to listen When no one really cares what's going on And it's 
hard to stand alone when you need someone beside you. Your spirit, your faith must be strong. What one man can do is dream. What one man can do is love. What one man can do is change the world and make it young again. Here you see what one man can do. As shaded as his eyes might be, that's how bright his mind is. That's how strong his love for you and me. A friend to all the universe, grandfather of the future, everything that I would like to be. But one man. What one man can do is love. What one man can do is change the world and make it new again. Here you see what one man can do. What one man can do is dream. What one man can do is love. What one man can do is change the world and make it work again. Here you see what one man can do. I'm telling you, I, I've listened to, uh, you know, Donna and. Murph and Cheryl, and I see these elements of John Denver's life, these, these three distinct elements that he was able to meld and, and mash up and push out to the world, but they were very distinct to me. As we, I mentioned in the beginning of the show, you know, Cheryl really talking about John's environmental stance and his dedication to that. It's a very deep thing in him. And then, of course, that transpired all the way through its mu his music. And then Murph comes along talking about how, you know, that one particular song, Boy for the Country, you know, moved him forward. And then he has this blossoming career with, with so much impact in the world. And then of course, Donna talking about what one man can do, how t her late husband, Terry, um, you know, started this concept based on John's song. What a fantastic song that is written for Bucky Fuller, what one man can do. And I, I wanted to end with that concept. It's not just about the men folk. It's about all of us. As John said, we must see the sacred where everybody else sees the ordinary. And when you change that out and you start seeing the incredible, vibrant world we live in and how important it is that we are stewards of this planet, which sustains our lives, by the way, it, for me, lines up perfectly. It gets pretty clear on what you spend time and what you don't. And while you may have zero control what's going on out there when it comes to environmental issues or any other issue, you have total control of what's going on inside you in regard to those issues. And when you engage in those things that are of concern to you, pretty soon you're part of the solution, not so much the apathetic problem. So I appreciate you listening today. Uh, tomorrow, John would have been 80. If you, uh, if you take a few minutes and remember him, 
in, in the ways that we talked about today, I think that's a good thing. Last song is mine. Uh, he wrote this uh, back in the 80s. It never made it to the radio as far as I know, but I think it's something that needs to be heard. And the message is clear. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. There's a full moon over India and Gandhi lives again Who's to say you have to lose for someone else to win In the eyes of all the people the look is much the same For the first to just the last one when you play a deadly game It's about time we realize it We're all in this together It's about time we find out It's all of us or none It's about time we recognize it These changes in the weather It's about time it's about changes and it's about time There's a light in the Vatican window For all the world to see And a voice cries in the wilderness And sometimes he speaks for me I suppose I love him most of all When he kneels to kiss the land with his lips upon our mother's breast He makes his strongest stand It's about time we start to see it The earth is our only home It's about time we start to face it We can't make it here all alone It's about time we start to listen To the voices in the wind It's about time it's about changes and it's about time There's a man who is my brother I just don't know his name but I know his home and family Because I know we feel the same And it hurts me when he's hungry And when his children cry I too am a father And that little one is mine It's about time we begin it To turn the world around it's about time we start to make it The dream we've always known It's about time we start to live it The family of man It's about time, it's about changes And it's about time It's about peace and it's about plenty And it's about time It's about you and it's about time